And you may be seated. Well, we are starting a new series, uh, hashtag beginnings on Genesis. And we did have our uh, small group curriculum books ordered. And I think they came Friday, uh, but the door was locked at that particular time. So I think he went away, whether it was UPS or FedEx. And so if you're a small group leader, we have a book for you. It's, it's on its way. So we apologize if it uh, isn't in your hands today. Uh, but there will be a chance as we are going to introduce our series today. Basically, it's kind of an overview. And what I'd like to give you uh, now first is a a wide-angle lens of kind of Genesis for about three minutes, okay? And then we'll kind of narrow in on one particular component or aspect that we see in Genesis 1.27, that you and I were made in the image of God. And we're going to talk about that specifically today. But let's, uh, let's get rolling with Genesis kind of stepping back and looking at it. And I've got uh, some drawings for you. Hopefully that will uh, help us, that will help you and, uh, and I to uh, learn it a little better. Genesis is a story that divides into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 11 tells the story of God and the whole world. Chapters 12 through 50 zooms into the story of God and just one man, Abraham and his family. These two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12 referred to and called the call of Abraham or Abram. The book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible and God brings out of it order, beauty, goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish and God makes humans or Adam in Hebrew in his image, which has to do with their role and their purpose in God's world. So that humans are made to be reflections of God's character out of the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which means to harness all of its potential to care for it and makes it a place that where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans, a key word in the book of Genesis, and he gives them a garden, a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Well, humans have a choice that's represented by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Until now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not, but now God is giving humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil or... Are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? The stakes are really high because to rebel against God is to embrace death. Because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. And that's represented by the tree of life. Well, in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. This snake is given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear it's a creature in rebellion against God. It wants to lead humans into rebellion and death. The snake tells a different story about the tree. The choice of seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, he says. It's a way to life, becoming like God themselves. The irony of this is tragic. Because 
It is the humans are already created to be like God and they were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize the autonomy. They take the knowledge of the good and evil for themselves and in an instant, the story spirals out of control. The first casualty is in human relationships. The man and the woman become vulnerable. They can't even trust each other, so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. They run and hide from God, and when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. And then here the story morphs into short poems where God declares to the snake and the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat. God promises that one day the seed of the woman, a descendant, will deliver a lethal strike. And, this, and then that's good news, you think, but victory will come at a cost because the snake too will deliver a strike and it will be to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a mysterious promise of a wounded victor. But in the flow of the story, we see it's an act of God's grace. The humans have rebelled, but God promises to rescue them. But the consequences of the human decision are not erased, so God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out on the field will be fraught with grief and pain because of rebellion, and it all leads to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward yet again in chapters 3 through 11, and they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships that are fractured on every level, and we see that in Abel and Cain. So this is just a general, very quick synopsis of at least the first 12 uh, as we move through it, and we'll do some of this, hopefully, some more in the next few weeks to give us uh, a picture of what the beginning was like, what Genesis was all about. And what I'd like to focus on today is four things. Number one, that you and I have been created in the image of God. What does that mean? And secondly, we see because of the fall that we abdicated our role of being image bearers to creation itself. As we read and as we see in Genesis, we see that uh, we were created in his image and yet we gave over that ruling authority to creation itself as we were tempted. Uh, thirdly, what this leads to, unfortunately for you and I, is it leads to a worship not of God, but of creation itself. And that's where we find images and idols. One of the, the biggest commandments in Scripture, throughout Scripture, is to refrain from worshiping idols. And I think you and I would agree that we still do this today. And then fourthly, what happens when we worship idols, when we elevate things to a status that only God deserves, is that we become like those idols themselves. What are those idols? They're deaf, they're dumb, they're mute. They can't speak, they can't do anything significant. And you and I become like them as we elevate uh, those things. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, in Genesis 1.26, it says that God said, let us make mankind in our image. Our is Elohim, 
It's a plural. It speaks to the Trinity, God speaking amongst the three. Let us make God, like, I'm sorry, make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That's important because that was the serpent who moved along the ground that tempted Adam and Eve, and yet we were intended to rule over uh, those creatures, not strip mine and pollute, and we'll talk about that in a second. So image bearer, you and I are image bearers of God. This is significant. This word, image, was specifically used in the ancient Near East as kings and rulers would make statues of their image, and they would place these statues all over their territory. So what did that represent? They had ownership or rulership wherever those statues were. And so when you see the conquest of a nation, the first thing the the conquerors would do is they would take down the statues. I still remember Lenin's statue being removed, at least seeing it in, in, in the in pictures, in the media, on TV, his statue being thrown down and shattered. And, and what that represented was the conquest because he was, his image was around his territory and that was his rulership. And so that was an evidence of their, govern, their governorship over that space. So God placed us, humans, as image bearers in his territory, a garden and on the earth, so that we would be viceroys, co-governors, to reflect his image as evidence of his governorship. And so we reflect God's goodness. We reflect who God is. And so when Adam and Eve failed, well, God just went into motion like he always does in redemption, in fixing things, in, in, in repairing and healing. And so his, what he ended up doing is taking a nation, Israel, that was then to reflect his goodness to the nations of the earth. And so that's what God does. That's what God did for us as he made us in his image. So Adam and Eve were given work to do in the Garden of Eden. And that work was to be healthy and good and, uh, and to represent God to the, the eventual nations. So when the serpent said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The temptation was ultimately to give human authority that God gave us and rulership over to created things, to elevate the creation to a status that only God deserves. So there was to be originally a hierarchy in creation. Humans were to exercise rulership over creation, but they abdicated to creation itself. Creation itself obtained a level of authority. That's why the Bible says that even creation itself is groaning until it gets liberated because it was never intended to be in a state uh, in which we find it. There's a propensity to do this elsewhere. We see Paul says in Romans, uh, when he's talking about pagan nations, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and look what they did. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. This is creation itself. To make, made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. 
And so it says, continues, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do? They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. This comes from Romans uh, chapter 1. So the assumption here is that, the Bi- that in the Bible is that every human being is a worshiper. When we are created in the image of God, we are created to worship God and him alone. And he would give us the ability to serve creation out of his strength, out of the, the tenderness and the love and the grace that he brought through us as image bearers, and we would serve others who are created, we're all created beings, and we'd serve creation itself, the environment, we would care for it, we'd be good stewards. And all that got flipped at the fall. And so I don't think we understand how devastating the fall actually was because everything got turned around. But we were called to worship. We were designed to worship. We were designed to reflect God's image And so worship is not just a religious activity. You think of worship, you come to church, and that's where you worship. Well, uh, no, worship is simply ascribing worth to something or someone. Therefore, every human being worships. Okay, you've spent all week worshiping because you've been ascribing worth to stuff or to someone. Atheists are worshiping right now. They're worshiping. Because it's ascribing worth. What's the most valuable thing in your life? It's giving worth to someone or something. It's aligning yourself and prioritizing your life around something. We, th- we think worship is simply a church thing, but we see examples of worship everywhere, don't we? We see worship everywhere. Human beings were designed by God to be worshipers, right? We see it in rock concerts. We see it in... Uh, Places where we give our devotion, we give our our money, we give our time, we give our energy, we give everything to something or someone to the extent that we love people more than food. That's worship, friends. Right? And I'm I'm picking on girls here, but this this is a soccer game. I'm I'm seeing a lot of guys in worship here. Uh, It's football season, friends, right? Football season. If I took my shirt off right now and I painted, I love Jesus right here, what, would, what do you think? I'd get kicked out, right? But you can go to a football game and you can expend amazing you know, energy to be uninhibited. It's interesting. When we celebrate the trivial, we're, it's okay to be uninhibited. But when we celebrate the creator of the universe, we have to be very proper and very correct, right? Mary didn't do that. She gave everything she had. And the religious leader said, well, certainly Jesus knows who this sinner is. And Jesus rebuked them and said, she is worshiping me extravagantly, embarrassingly, uh, with no inhibitions as she gave over a year's salary of her, of the pure perfume nard uh, to Jesus on behalf of his, Jesus said, his burial preparing him for a burial. It was worship and it was extravagant. And so yet we can go to a football game or a rock concert and we can worship, but when we come to church, we have to be 
uh, very controlled, right? What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus? Does it create spontaneous excitement? I suggest that we move into that uh, a little more. We are all image bearers, and therefore we are called to worship. But we have, through the centuries, for thousands of years, misplaced our worship. And we have, as Paul said, put it upon created things. This is what uh, the Israelites did when they said, where's Moses? He's been on the hill for so long. We need something to worship. Let's, and so they took all the gold and the jewelry, formed a fashioned a calf, and they said, here is Yahweh. Here is your God. And so we at least have something we can see, we can feel, we can touch, right? Humans were idle factories. We just want something we can have. It's interesting. God came how? On the mountain in Sinai. How did he come? Fire, smoke, lightning, thunder, very uncontrollable, right? But we don't like that. We want something we can control, something we can fashion ourselves. And it ends up we worship ourselves when we worship creation because God can't be put in a box. He can't be controlled. And that's why he appeared as fire and smoke and lightning and thunder, And that's why I believe there is no physical description of Jesus in the Bible. The only autobiographical sketch that Jesus gives is he was lowly, he was meek, and he was humble at heart. The only autobiographical sketch. Because if Jesus was tall and blonde and good-looking, we might end up revering people like that, right? We, have, we need something physical. That was just a joke. We need something physical. We need something tangible so we can bring God down and make him manageable, right? But that's not what he... Allow. So this was 3,000 or so years ago. God told the Israelites, don't make an image. And what do they do? So a few thousand years ago, well, friends, this was last week at the Burning Man Festival in Reno. And I would suggest it's not much different than what we saw worshiping the golden calf. It's, it's metal. It's an animal. You know, it's uh, nothing's changed. We all worship. We are created to worship. Everyone's a worshiper. The only question is, Do you worship the creator or do you worship creation? That's it. That's the only question. So those are only two options. Paul said they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. Birds, animals, reptiles, and I would suggest fiery octopuses. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So you're all great worshipers, whether you think so or not. You really are. Okay, Uh, you walk around all day declaring something is valuable. The issue isn't for the church to teach you how to worship better. You do that really well. The issue is what are the objects of your devotion and your affection? If you want to do a test, I'd recommend that uh, you uh, simply take not so much what you sing about, not from your words. Remember, Jesus said, uh, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? He wants to know what's in our hearts. Uh, We can sing, we can speak hypocritically. That's not how we do the test. Instead of what you say, 
perhaps, if you want to know what you worship, look at how you live daily. How do you live? Follow your priorities, your spending. Who do you follow? Who do you take counsel from? Who do you want to be like? Who are you emulating? Who, where do you spend most of your time? And that pathway will lead you to a throne. And on that throne will be something or someone. And who is it? What is it for you? And that's what you give of yourself. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? What, do you, what gets you really excited? That, those are your priorities. That's the most important thing in your life. And that eventually will take your worship and you will worship it. Jesus said we are all slaves to something or someone. And the Pharisees were quite offended. And they said, we're not slaves of anyone. And he said, oh, yes, you are. Your priorities, what is the most valuable thing in your life? And for the Pharisees, it was their rules and it was themselves and it was their religious systems, but it wasn't the person of Jesus. So now, don't get me wrong here, is these are actually all good things. I love football. I love, I love a good meal. Uh, you know, I, I love having nice things, right? These are all good things. They're the created things that God, that the Bible says, were given to us to enjoy. The problem is, is when they become elevated to a status where that's the realm only God deserves, and he does this not to be a party pooper, not to take, not to take good things away from you. He's doing this to protect you. Because as we'll see shortly, we become like the idols that we elevate. So there's nothing wrong with these good things. Uh, but when it gets, except for maybe the metallic octopus, frankly. But when it gets elevated to a status that God deserves, it becomes idolatrous. We're always attracted to things that we can see, see and feel and taste and touch. Jesus said, God is spirit and his worshipers worship in spirit. And in truth. And idols can be manipulated, they can be controlled, and then they, we become like many gods, right? Uh, we are to be image bearers reflecting the true one true God. So even when we worship our Creator, we prefer a God we can see and we can control. And like I said, when He appeared, He appeared as things that were not uncontrollable. Fire and smoke and lightning. So why don't we, uh, I think this is what happens eventually, is when we abdicate our role of image bearers, then we worship creation images, and then we, like I said, become like them. Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. So here's the point. You come to resemble whatever it is that you worship. And this is important. And this is what the Bible says very clearly, is you will be like those things that you elevate. So if you worship money, you'll become greedy. If you worship sex, you'll become lustful and impure. 
If you worship approval, you'll be a people pleaser. If you worship power, you'll become controlling and manipulative. If you worship status, you'll become a workaholic. We're all like living black holes. And we just need to feed our sense of insecurity, our weakness, because we don't believe God in his word that says that he will be all-sufficient. David said that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, but we don't believe that. So what do we do? We want everything else, and we feed our, these idle factories that we, we continue to not learn. And how many times has the, you know, the rich told us, like, it hasn't satisfied, and yet, you know, I still want to become rich, and I want to be the rich person telling the poor person, uh, trust me, it doesn't satisfy. <laughs> uh, but how many times have we heard this, and yet we fail to believe it? And so we continue to pursue it as a black hole sucking in all of this, and you eventually become dumb and blind and stupid, like the idols that, that we worship. Think of what, a, and it always comes at a sacrifice, does it not? Think of what the alcoholic will sacrifice for drink. What are the sacrifices that we are making, our kids and our families, and uh, the things that we will sacrifice so that we can have these things that ultimately don't fulfill us at the end? But if you worship Jesus, you will become like Jesus. And that's the goal. Genesis 1, created in God's image, rulership over God's creation to reflect his image everywhere, stewards of creation for the benefits of others and all to the glory of God. Genesis 3 gave the authority away to creation itself, tempted to find life in creation, and yet God goes on a plan, of a mission to redeem and bring back those lost ones, ourselves included, to show us that he is all-sufficient, that we are to feast on Jesus, worship him so that the image of God may be reflected fully and purely through us, and then we'll be happy. It'll be, it's like when you have a feast at Thanksgiving, and then, and then someone after a big Thanksgiving feast offers you some cotton candy, and you just think, that's ludicrous, that's stupid, I'm, I'm full I have, I've had pumpkin pie. I'm, I'm, I'm full. And the same idea is when you have Jesus and you recognize what he has done for you and through you, all that other stuff pales in comparison. That's the mindset that God is desiring for us to have. So that we recognize these idols for what they are. And we don't get tempted and drawn away because they leave us empty. And Jesus promises the living water that flows from your innermost being that will gush and you'll have this enormous peace and satisfaction. That's what God is offering to us. And he's saying all these other things will pale. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you as well. See, he actually throws those in, the, the kitty, right? Those are thrown in. But not if you pursue them first. You'll be empty and you'll, you'll get your priorities wrong and then you'll spiral out of control, much like our ancestors did in the early chapters of Genesis. So we feast on Jesus. We recognize that when we come back to the center of what we are called to do, worshiping him and him alone, we become image bearers 
in a, in a healthy way. And we no longer have to be these black holes constantly sucking in and, and being deceived by all the dainties and all the, 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 the things that media and everybody else wants to tell us that we need. But like David, we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beginning of this love letter that you've given us to show us the reality of who we are, of who you are, and what you offer us. Life itself, eternal life. Father, may we not be deceived. May we reorient our priorities. May we take stock. What is it that we are pursuing? What is it that we are, uh, that is a barrier that's in our way uh, when it comes to seeking and serving you first and foremost in purity? Father, would you lead us into all truth? Would we be true worshipers, worshipers of you in spirit and in truth? Thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you that it comes alive for us and that we might leave from here changed and practically applying these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.